On this episode of the Culture Pop Podcast, I somehow got myself involved in a twerk off. Sue reacts. Plus, one of the great storytellers of all time joins us. Jeffrey Lyons talks about everything from bullfighting to baseball. Don't forget, you can subscribe to the Culture Pop Podcast on Apple, Spotify, and at stevemason.com. And don't forget, leave us a rating and a review. The Culture Pop Podcast is brought to you by the law offices of Jacob Imrani. Accident or injury, call Jacob Imrani, call Jacob. Hey, it's Mace. If you or a friend or loved one is injured in an accident, the first person you should call is my friend Jacob. When I did this, Jacob was great. He helped me by talking through the next steps, which really put my mind at ease. When you're injured in an accident, you got to have an expert. That's why you call Jacob, just like I did. Call Jacob, 844-24-JACOB. That's 844-24-JACOB. Or visit calljacob.com. Call Jacob. Hey, everybody, welcome to the Culture Pop Podcast. I'm Steve Mason, along with Sue Kalinske. It is a Saturday morning, but at a reasonable time. Like, I got to sleep in today, Sue. I'm feeling recharged. It's a Saturday. Great weekend spilling out here. How about you? I did not get to sleep in because I ran with my running group. Oh, really? I got up at 7 and ran, uh, ran, walked four miles. Yeah. The all run walk. The all run walk. Still doing it, huh? Yep. So we got a really cool guest coming up. I've known him a long time. I've known his son, Ben, for uh, Ben Lyons for a, a long time. Jeffrey Lyons is just, you know, the term raconteur, mm-hmm. raconteur. Nobody throws that word around it, but that applies to Jeffrey Lyons. He is a great storyteller uh, and a great raconteur. Now, I asked you to pull up before we went on. Mm-hmm. my uh, Instagram and look at the very first thing on there. <laughs> um, okay. Now, are you seeing it now? I'm seeing it now, but I actually saw it. Uh, po- you posted it. I don't know if it was on Twitter or something. It's ever, but- it's been everywhere. <laughs> it's yes. Been everywhere. I, I did. I did see it. So I was involved in a twerk off. With uh, Scott Kaplan, also from uh, 710 ESPN, on Thursday at a place called Bastard's Canteen in downtown Downey. Uh, And the idea was we were both supposed to twerk. And Sue, how would you describe my twerking capabilities? (laughs) I'm just going to laugh. I'm just laughing. And then you determine how I felt about it. I can tell. (laughs) I can tell. Now, how do I get myself involved in these stupid, stupid bits? Well, I mean, so what happens? Producers come up with ideas and then they pitch them to you? Or whose idea was this? This was Scott Kaplan's idea. Okay. So Scott Kaplan on his show said, "We're, we're looking, we're doing a show. We're looking for sort of a gag, and this was the gag. Why don't you guys twerk off? Now, I don't even know if twerking is still a thing. I got my game-winning mood uh, move from watching a video where the woman sort of went into a downward-facing dog twerking motion, and right. that's what won it. That's what put me over the top with the crowd. People absolutely loved that. But I only get a smirky laugh from you. So you actually won. I did. 
I didn't know what the outcome was. Yeah. I just, I just know how I felt about it. The crowd went wild, Sue. The crowd went wild. Um, and what, what was he doing? I don't even know what he was doing. Was he, he trying was, to be some superhero or something? Was, or? No, he was doing like some sort of, uh, like his twerking was, looked like he was constipated. That was, <laughs> that. his twerking was like, uh, uh, mine, I went down to the hands and did the uh, downward facing dog twerking, which is degree of difficulty, very, very high. But I, my mom is incredibly proud of, of me for winning this twerk off. Now, what what does it determine? Like you you just mentioned degree of difficulty. So, <laughs> were there like categories like like sticking a landing or something? Um, we, we what was it based on? Was it just based on people's reactions, or was it based on criteria? Just based on people's reaction. There were no like individual categories. There were no <laughs> judges holding up tens and nines. It wasn't Carrie uh, Anaba. Uh, Carrie Ann and Inaba putting up what's her name? Carrie Ann Inaba. Inaba. Uh, holding up a sign saying you won the dance. Nothing like that. It was huh. just strictly crowd reaction. And we were freestyling, Sue. We were just freestyling. <laughs> well, wow. Well, if you actually trained for this, <laughs> it was a poor showing. But yeah. um, but you know, I mean, this is kind of the hijinks that happens when you have a radio show, kind of, right? I yeah, mean, no, it is. It's yeah. you know, when, especially when you do a live show and a lot of people show out to see you, you're like, oh, we want to give them a little show. More than the Lakers suck, the Rams are struggling, and and uh, USC's got a chance to go to the college football play. They, they want something more than that. They want something well, more. So we they try want, to They want to see something human, you know? They want that that human kind of fun element from a show. There is that, no question that we are very, very human. <laughs> well, something that they could uh, they could say, hey, he's, he's kind of one of us in a way, you know? Yeah, yeah. I think people like to see that from, uh, you know, from their fans. You know, it's funny. I told... This story on the air not too long ago, but Jim Lampley, I used to work with Jim Lampley, who is hands down the smartest person I have ever worked with, period, end of story. Wait a minute. I take issue with that. <laughs> <laughs> All right, go ahead. Uh, so Jim <laughs> told me that uh, when I was working with him at Fox Sports Radio and he said, Mace, don't ever let him know you're smart. And uh, he said he felt like being really, really intelligent and a little bit intimidating because of that may have hurt him in his career. He may have reached a higher level of things. So I, I, I would like to let Jim Lampley know, don't worry, I'm not smart. <laughs> I'm not smart. Clearly demonstrated by that. Well, I, I do think that sometimes you downplay you know, sometimes you you play a, a, a foolish guy or, um, yeah, sometimes you, no, you do. And I think you do it sometimes. It's, it's, it's entertaining. But there are times where I know you know something and you act like you don't. You know where I learned that from? Johnny Carson. Johnny huh. Carson. So I read this book called King of the Night about Johnny Carson, a biography of him years back. And one of the things he said is he wanted... As when he sat at that desk and was interviewing people, he wanted the audience to look at him and say, he's just like me. And he would deliberately forget the name of a person 
or a movie. So the guy at home would look at the TV and say, come on, Johnny, even I know that. And it right. made him very, very relatable in that way. So I did steal that from Johnny Carson. I've elevated it to a level that Johnny couldn't possibly have imagined. With twerking. With twerking, exactly. <laughs> did you ever meet Johnny Carson? Um, no, I never did. I uh, I got to meet him. Hmm. And I was working with Tom Snyder. Uh, the producer was a guy named Peter LaSalle, who was the longtime director of The Tonight Show. Uh, or producer, I, I forget, producer, director. He was a producer. Yeah. And so one time we were in this uh, Italian restaurant, me and Tom Snyder and Peter LaSalle were in this Italian restaurant uh, over by the Beverly Center. And over in the corner was Johnny Carson having dinner. And Johnny, this was after he had retired and he sort of this little pot belly and his, he grew his hair out and you wouldn't even necessarily know it was Johnny Carson at a glance. But he, uh, Peter and Tom went over to talk to Johnny mm-hmm. and then uh, Peter called me over and introduced me to Johnny Carson. And I just froze because mm-hmm. that was fucking Johnny Carson. Are you wow. kidding me? Uh, so I, I did have the pleasure of, of meeting Johnny Carson and it was an incredible honor. And he loved guys like Jeffrey Lyons. I don't know if he was ever on with, with Jeffrey Lyons, but Jeffrey's the kind of guest that he loved. Like I remember Orson Bean and have it and guys like that who are just good storytellers. Mm -hmm. And, uh, our guest today is one of those types of guys. He's a film critic, a television personality, an author a Boston Red Sox fan, and as I mentioned, an all-around raconteur. Jeffrey Lyons joins us. Jeffrey, thank you so much for doing this. It's good to see you. It's good to be seen. Uh, it's been a long time. It's when back when Ben was working at uh, your say, at your shop. Exactly, exactly. And you know, I had you on the radio a bunch, and I'm excited to get you for a longer, kind of more freewheeling conversation here. You sent us a link to a video of you and your family with Ernest Hemingway in Cuba. Tell, tell us about that video. Well, let's set it up. My father was the most iconic Broadway columnist of his era, 1934 to 1974. He wrote a thousand words a day, six days a week during the golden age of New York nightclubs and restaurants. It was not a gossip column. That was Winchell's column. He wrote about newsworthy people. He knew everybody. And he said, I'll write about my sister Rosie in Brooklyn if she's newsworthy. And once in a while, my Tante Rosie was newsworthy. <laughs> once in a great while. But um, he, he knew actors, lawyers, gangsters, presidents, uh, movie stars, governors. I, I, knew, I grew up knowing the, these people. And one of them was Ernest Hemingway. It turned out that FDR was mentioned the most times in the column. And every single item ever mentioned in the column, that's 12,478 columns. Mm. Six days a week, a thousand words a day, every item was annotated. If it was annotated in a black entry, it's just an announcement. Steve Mason is doing a popular broadcast. But if Steve Mason is signed to do his life story for MGM, and Mason said, when I got that, an anecdote, that's written in red. So I've read every column. I'm working on another book about the column now. But uh, so that's how that was our entree. And he and Hemingway became good friends, totally opposite. Hemingway went hunting. My father went hunting too for anecdotes in restaurants and nightclubs, six <laughs> days a week. And they became good friends. And that really influenced my life because in December, in January, 1952, he invited my parents and my brothers and me to their home in near Havana. My youngest brother, Douglas, who's just retired as a prominent defense counsel, 
uh, was too little to go. He wanted to go. He said, I won't touch anything. Take me. He wasn't old enough. I, and I've lauded that over him ever since. <laughs> so we went, we went to Cuba and uh, he taught me how to fire a gun and he took me to highlight games. And uh, our families continued our friendship. I wrote a book about it called Hemingway and Me. And then in 1956, I went to Spain with my parents. And in our room next to us was a young actress named Sofia Sicilione before she changed her last name. And people say, Sophia Lauren? I say, no, Sophia Epstein. Yes, Sophia Lauren. Took <laughs> <laughs> me a spaghetti dinner. And uh, later I had her meet my wife and son years later. And I, uh, we, Richard Condon, who wrote The Manchurian Candidate in Pritzi's Honor, took us to something called The Bullfight and changed my life. The last thing on earth I would be hung up on. My, my brain is divided into three sections. Movies and Broadway, mostly movies now baseball and bullfighting and uh in 1956 58 i went back to spain and we found a family with two boys and then i lived with them for two summers to learn spanish and then in 1961 hemingway a month before he died arranged me to travel with his godson antonio ordonez who was to bullfighting what ken griffey jr willie mays mickey mantle stan Musial were combined and he thought it would be for two weeks to turn into seven summers and our families are still close. And uh, 60 Minutes did a full hour about Antonio's grandsons. And our son, Ben, traveled with one of the grandsons for, for three or four weeks. Wow. And so it's, I've been to Spain 37 times. My wife insists the next time we go to Europe, she wants to go to a place where they do not speak Spanish. <laughs> I, never, I never had to open a book in Spanish class. And it really helps the old grade point average zoom up. And then in January of 2017, Joe Castiglione, the Red Sox longtime radio announcer, and his wife, Jan, told us they were going to go to uh, Cuba. That was a gift she gave him. I said, we're going. You'll save the cost of an interpreter. And I learned Spanish. I speak Spanish the way Mickey Mantle spoke English. And so <laughs> Southern Spanish, Southern dialect. And we went and uh, went back to the farm. And, and uh, I'd always wanted to go back. And I let them know that we were going, we were coming. Uh, the Texas Rangers announcer it, had been giving tours of Cuba, so we set it up through him, and I brought some copies of letters, and they gave me letters my father wrote to Hemingway. And when Hemingway died, when Mary found the body, she called my dad before she called the police. And, wow. And wow. That's how close they were. So that's how uh, – and, and that, that video I showed you, my two older brothers and me, and Hemingway showed me – you know, I was, I was uh, fascinated by cowboy pictures. I guess I still am. And I, when as, as a child, I walked around with two guns and I answered to the name of Tex, a little Jewish boy walking around with two fake pistols and named Tex, uh, called, called himself Tex. And so when Hemingway said they had had bandits in the hills, oh my God, that was thrilling. And let me fire a real gun. And now I'm not a gun person by any means of the imagination. But that's how all that started. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, so that's, hmm. that's the long way to explain it. So I wanted to ask you something. I went to Spain and I've been to Mexico and I've seen bullfights in both places. Right. So when I was in Mexico, the crowd roots for the bull. When I went to Spain, the crowd roots for the matador. It's not a rooting thing. It is not a contest. I mm -hmm. have seen over 600 bullfights. I've never mm -hmm. seen, I've never seen an indulto, which is when the bull's life is spared the way it was in the brave one and in, and in Ferdinand. Uh, it's and also in Mexico, I'm sure there are many more tourists. What's interesting is in Mexico, the matador takes a counterclockwise lap around the ring, and in Spain, it's a clockwise. 
And in Mexico, the ambiente, the feeling in the crowd is, hey, in Spain, it's deadly serious. It's the relationship is akin to Japanese baseball and American baseball, with all due respect to Japanese baseball. So I was with a matador once the night before his debut in Spain, and the bulls in Spain are bigger. It doesn't mean they're more dangerous, but it doesn't help to have a 500-kilo truck come out there and say, this is the first thing you've seen, you've faced this size. Yeah. So it's been so, a while. So you, uh, and again, you grew up meeting these people who are iconic uh, legend. One of them was Orson Welles. I would imagine, how old were you met when you met Orson Welles, and had you were you aware of Citizen Kane and sort of his legendary IMDb? Well, Orson was my dad's best friend. And Orson gave me a primer on bullfighting before my first tour with Ordonia. Orson was the world's greatest authority on everything except sports. Didn't know anything about sports. Uh, I knew him as, as a child and I knew him my whole life. Not well, but, but, but I, his daughter Beatrice is one of our closest friends. We went back to Spain with her in 2007, my wife Judy and I to see the naming of a street in Ronda, which is the mountaintop birthplace of bullfighting on foot. And they're adjoining streets, Casa Ernesto Hemingway and Car Casa Orson Wells, or as they call them, Orson Weyes. Mm. Uh, Orson was a fascinating guy. He didn't know how to handle money, which is kind of important if you're going to produce your own films. But boy, and he had the misfortune of his greatest achievement coming when he was 24. How do you yep. top your... That, mm. that, and he, he forever tried to do that. But he was an amazing man. I mean, he just, everybody is influenced by Citizen Kane, whether they know it or whether they like it or not. It's the most important film ever made. So, so at what, what age did you get the bug to become a writer growing up with a father who did it for a living? As soon as I could know what he was doing for a living. Uh, and I became a movie critic. I've been a movie, I'm still a movie critic on radio stations across the country. And I also have five baseball trivia questions to other stations. And uh, I've been doing it ever since. I've, I've reviewed over, let's see, 16,000 films, which is insane. So I think of a couple of movies. Like, I remember the very first movie I ever saw because it's my very first memory. I was at the drive-in in Cleveland, Ohio, and we were watching Planet of the Apes, which, by the way, for a three-year-old, is kind of a scary movie. That's uh, amazing. And boring. I hate those movies. So you do hate those. Oh, it's so stupid. So, so. But, but I have to respect people who do like films that I don't like. Yeah, yeah. Right. Now, the first, the most influential movie on my life was Chinatown, which, I mean, when I was a kid and I saw Chinatown, I said, I want to live in Los Angeles. Now, I, of course, that Los Angeles didn't exist anymore. Right. That sort of, uh, that, that period Los Angeles. But it's one of the reasons why I did fall in love with the, the city. What were the movies that were the most influential to you when you were growing up? Well, I, I'm not sure as when, as I was young enough to be called growing up, but I, my favorite films, some of them both by John Frankenheimer, Seven Days in May and The Manchurian Candidate, the original one, not the needless remake. My favorite all-time film is uh, The Graduate. Mm. Uh, I love a lot of Orson Welles films, but I love anything James Earl Jones does. Field of Dreams. Despite the having uh, uh, Shoeless Joe bat right-handed, I would always kid Ray Liotta about it as the last question of any interview. How could you bat right-handed as Shoeless Joe? Babe Ruth patterned his swing of, of, of from Shoeless Joe Jackson. I love that film because it's about a father and a daughter, not just a father and son. 
uh, I mean, whenever certain films are on, I love Bad Day at Black Rock. That's mm. yeah. it's 85 minutes or so with uh, Lee Marvin and Ernest Borgnine right before they became stars. In fact, Ernest Borgnine was given permission to leave the set and go audition for another movie. And it was called Marty, and he got the part, and he beat Spencer Tracy for the Oscar. Spencer Tracy was up for for <laughs> Bad Day at Black Rock. Love that movie with Walter Brennan. Yeah, uh, yeah, with that Massachusetts accent still <laughs> in, in that movie. Uh, so when my favorite films come on, I don't want to watch them. Too. I love Summer of '42, mm. wistful movie, and she was uh, she's before things been married nine times. As they used to say about Jaja, she had rice marks on her, the poor thing. But <laughs> By the way, Jaja, this is the kind of stories my father would print. Jaja was, on, was once asked, how many husbands have you had? She said, including my own? That was Jaja. <laughs> <laughs> Feel free to use these. Yeah, Bob, yeah. Well, we were, talk, we were talking about the idea of being a raconteur, uh, hmm. this sort of ability to, to tell anecdotes and stories and it's kind of a lost art. You're you're the greatest raconteur I I know. Well, that means that I, I, that means in the prisoner of war camp, I do the entertaining, right? <laughs> <laughs> what am I, a clown? <laughs> well, and speaking of that, the first person my father ever walked up to was a journalist for the New York. He had written for the Jewish Daily Forward, which still exists, where they would say, "Stop the presses, hold the back page." But anyway, he uh, he he. The first person he ever walked up to was Milton Berle. They stayed friends for years. And the other day, I, I was looking at Turner Classics, which is a gift from God. That station, that is just mm. great. They had a movie I'd never heard of called "Always Leave Him Laughing," and Milton Berle plays a schlock stand-up comic who can never get a break. And I I didn't have time to watch all of it. I fast-forwarded. Suddenly, there's a scene in front of Lindy's, which was on my father's nightly beat, and I slowed down the DVR. And one character comes out and he says, have you read Lenny Lyons' column yesterday? I couldn't believe that I found that totally by accident. He never wow. mentioned that. To me. My dad played himself twice in the movies, and the critics said he was unconvincing. <laughs> <laughs> I'll wait for the laughter to die down. I'll be here all week. Uh, but but uh, uh, I, I like certain films obsess me, certain ones don't. But, you know, you leave, you leave the theater, you're two hours closer to the grave. And what have you gotten out of this? And if I'm, if I see a movie and, and I'm not the intended, I just saw a movie the other day with the guy who calls himself Machine Gun Kelly. Yes. Right? Mm -hmm. It was devoid of anything. And I realized that I said in the review, I know I'm not the intended audience, but even if you are the intended audience, there's got to be more plot than just watching him try to act. So you got to understand the night before I became a critic, Ruth Gordon said to me, Sonny, you're starting your career tomorrow. Think twice before you knock somebody else's work. And I've always tried to do that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's it amazes me sometimes because I know how difficult it is to get a movie made. Mm. And then some really, really crappy movies um are made. And and it's and and it and it's, you know, and I, I remember years ago there was a movie with um Cindy Crawford and Richard was it? No, it was. I think Billy Baldwin was maybe in it, and it was. Yeah, called, it was called. It was called Sliver, Fair, Fair Game. Oh, it was Fair a movie Game. Called yeah, Fair Game. And I was doing stand up at the time, and I remember saying that the movie. I was. I actually saw it on a plane, and I said it was so bad. I actually walked out. You can, I, I could never do that <laughs> I, I on a plane. On a plane. I saw a movie once called about Patty Hearst, where she was gang raped by six guys and a snake. <laughs> and a snake. And I did walk out on that one, and I did say it in the review. And I also did a movie called saw a movie called Sweet Savior, which was about 
the Manson murders, and I met Sharon Tate, so I kind of took it personally. Wow. And another movie, uh, uh, I forget, Sallow, was that played at the New York Film Festival. And I began that review by saying, unfortunately, my seat was facing the screen. <laughs> I saved that. You've got to save that. You can't. I mean, there was a, there have been critics whose metier, whose, whose, whose signature is to insult. And you're not there for that at all. Yeah, <laughs> I always think, Jeffrey, there are so many people that work so hard on even these awful movies that I never want to go really hard on them because I know what blood, sweat, and tears went into them, you know? Right. Not, not always. I mean, you see poor Alec Baldwin suing the, the people who made the movie yeah. Rust. Now, that film will, may never be opened. And even if it's a great film, you're watching the movie and it go, this goes through your mind from start to finish. And I know Alex slightly and I feel badly for him in some ways. Uh, but it, it, you try to put all that out of your mind when you go into the movie. I, I try to go in with a clean slate. I watch a lot online now, too, because it's much more convenient. Yeah. Well, you grew up in New York and somehow you wound up a Boston Red Sox fan. How did yeah. that happen? Because in the 17th century. The <laughs> you were not alive in the 17th century. <laughs> philosopher Descartes said, uh, what, what did he say? Oh, the heart has reasons that reason itself knows nothing about. Why did I marry the most beautiful woman from Chicago when there are beautiful women around the corner from me in the middle of Manhattan? Why does love have to be explained? My oldest brother, George, who knew more about baseball than I'll ever know, more than any non-player I ever knew just about or non-announcer, was a Red Sox and a Cardinal fan. So I had to make a choice. 1967 was a little strange because they played each other as they would later on in 2007, I think. Uh, I, it's, it's, it's a passion that I have for them. And I, I'm, I'm, I train, here's the kind of father I have. I'm a New York Giant fan. And in high school, I was a field goal kicker played briefly in college, and my dad arranged me to travel, uh, to uh, train with the Giants in preseason for three summers. My, my teacher was Ken Strong, <clears throat> who played in the sneaker game in the 1930s, and Pat Summerall. And I learned a bitter lesson. When I kicked a 40-yard field goal and from, in, in, after, you know, with, with special teams practicing, the ball plopped over. When Pat Summerall kicked it, feeding his family with 220 pounds behind him, it's sore. If you ever go to batting practice, those guys hit balls that you and I would dream about oh, every yeah. time it comes. But that's all they do. That's why they do it. And they're born to, they're there because they're better. So I had fun with it, but I realized I would never, uh, if I ever signed a pro contract, I'd also insist on playing no game after November 1st. It's too cold for me. I'm not a, I don't sit out in the stands and freeze. So you've, you've written a ton, a ton about baseball. I mean, sports in general. Um, are there any, are there any sports, like when I think of sports movies, is there any story that you know of that's never been told? Lots of players who run their backgrounds. Uh, uh, I'd have to stop and think stories of certain obscure players. There've been two movies about Mo Berg or two mm -hmm. books about Mo. Two yes. Movies. One was a documentary. My father knew him, but never, never, never picked up a check by the way. Uh, Mo Berg. I would never read the paper if anybody else had read it. Well, uh, he was he was the catcher. The catcher was a spy. That's right. right? And yes, that was one book. Because and were, because uh, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but uh, I I read that George Clooney actually bought the rights to it, and I've been waiting for that movie to come out for years. Uh, who's the guy that played the Ant Man? You know, um, uh, yeah, uh, Paul Rudd. Paul Rudd played him in 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 a, in a movie, and he's a big Kansas City Royals fan, by the way. Yes, and I thought he, I thought he did a nice job. Didn't look like a professional athlete. 
but um, there's a more. I mean, when when we knew that um, that that Moberg had the ability to speak fluent German, uh, he went to Dr. Einstein, Professor Einstein, and asked him about nuclear fission, such as it was. And Einstein asked him about baseball. I would have loved to have seen that recreated. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. Mm. So how do you think this comes up all the time on the show? What's wrong with baseball? We've got to fix baseball. Um, you know, now we've got a universal DH and in extra innings, we start with a runner on second and next year they're getting rid of the shift and there's going to be a pitch clock and all this stuff. How do you think baseball is doing? I'm doing a little better. I, I, I don't like changing something just to get the games faster. I don't like the bigger base for the next year. That's ridiculous. That makes a stolen base easier. I'm not sure I like the prohibition of shifts. Learn to hit to the opposite field. Yeah. Then that'll end the shift. Uh, run around second, maybe not in the 10th inning, maybe in the 12th inning. Okay. Mm -hmm. So you don't want to have 15 hour, 15 inning games, 20 inning games. That's ridiculous. It's fun to talk about when you're, had a few hours of sleep afterwards, but and that's dangerous too to have players so exhausted. That's when you get hurt sometimes. They're doing some things. Pitch clock. I'm not sure anybody's going to pay attention to that. It remains to be seen. But fans have a shorter attention span now, so I guess the commissioner is trying that. Let, let's see. Let's see what happens. It's too soon to tell. Now you've been able to call some Red Sox games on in Spanish, right? And, and I did. I did one or two innings at, in, in in English too. But you know the person at home wants to hear the game. They don't want to hear some guy in an ego trip. Yeah, but I did it in Spanish when they, one of the announcers was not there that day. So I, first I did analysis and then I did play by play. And I speak again, Spanish, Spanish, which if you've been to Spain, where, where did you see your bullfight by the way in Spain? Oh God, I don't remember. It was such a long time ago. Um, I, you know, I had been to Barcelona and Madrid. Those were the two places that it probably was, but I don't, I don't remember. Anyway, as you know, the British speak different English than we do. And I was afraid of saying something incorrectly in the Latin American dialect than the Spanish dialect. But I got by it. Uh, once in a while, I was fearful of not knowing the verb that was the key to the whole sentence. So, you know, he would say, do you think the Red Sox will blank? So I'd have to say in, in translating, well, we shall see, or yeah, you, you got a point there. But it was it was fun. It was exhausting. But it was it was something I'll never forget. Viene la pelota, lanzamiento, bola bajita. I can do it. <laughs> yes, yes. Well, get, I don't want to put you on the spot, but how about a how about a home run call? Un cuadrangular para la media rocas arriba Colombia. You can do that too. You can root for that. Uh, Red Sox had a shortstop from Colombia, so I learned that trade. So you can a home run is a quadrangular, un cuadrangular, not un home run, un cuadrangular. And an outfielder is a jardinero, which is a gardener, because he's out amongst the grass in the outfield. And the double play is a doble matanza, which is a double killing. I got my hands on the book that are given to rookies uh, to learn the English, you know, for, for Dominican or Cuban players to learn how to say certain things in English and vice versa. I think in the offseason, players should, be lear should learn to speak Spanish and Spanish players should learn to speak English a little bit. Uh, I really do, because it, it just makes it easier for, and trips to the mound. I also, I, I'm not sure I like the new thing where they, where the catcher taps his knee and the guy's listening in his hat because. Right. It's, listens for the uh, pitch. I, exactly. It's so, it's so weird. It looks like Gary Owens from laughing. Right. Remember? Remember that character? 
Um, I wanted to ask you about Japanese baseball because I read a book many years ago called You Gotta Have Wa. Um, <laughs> you're laughing. Steve, did you ever read that book? No, I never did. I've never seen a game in Japan. Never been to Japan. Oh, okay. It's, it's actually a, it's a fascinating book because the way they treat their ball players and how quickly managers take players out for not producing is just insane. Like the Tom Selleck movie. Yeah, I, I, I know the movie. I never saw it. Oh, he plays an American, former Detroit Tiger, because Selleck's from Detroit. And he goes to uh, Japan and he learns that, the, you know, they, they, they exercise before the game and after the game. Look at the way Ichiro would do warm-ups. They do exercises there that we don't do at all. But mind you, our guys are generally bigger, but uh, it's a whole different attitude there. There's, there's pride and there's respect and it's very different. Yeah, like you know, we 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 may, we we criticize you know a lot of our managers. Well, Dave Roberts gets criticized a lot for taking pitchers out, you know, too early, too late, whatever. But they they would take out a, a a hitter who you know maybe didn't get a hit the first couple of at bats. He's out of the game. I mean, it's really a, a whole different ball game, so to speak. I know there. Dave Roberts slightly, um, and I I'll always worship him for the most famous stolen base in baseball history. Yeah. And- mm-hmm. Rich Hill is a good friend of mine, and boy, he's coming back next year, I believe. He'll be 43, and he was winning it for the Dodgers. As you know, they took him out after six innings because of the analytics people, I guess. But, uh, you know, everything can't go your way all the time. At the end of every season, if the Red Sox are not in the postseason, Joe Castiglione reads the poem written by A. Bartlett Giamatti called The Green Fields of the Mind. Look it up. It begins to say baseball will break your heart. It was designed to. It comes in the spring when, I'm paraphrasing now, when thoughts are high, skies are blue, and then when the leaves begin to fall and the gutters get crowded with leaves and there's a chill in the air, it leaves you to face the winter alone. Mm. It, uh, you, you use it to buffer the passage of time. You count on it. You rely on it. And then suddenly winter is here and it's gone. Oh, you don't yeah. do that about sport. Yeah, a winner. Winner came early for the Dodgers this year. I, it, it's it's you know, baseball is one of those sports because I love baseball more than any sport, and I know it's Steve's favorite sport as well. And I never hear anybody speak of another sport as poetically as they do about baseball. The only poetic for football, I know, is uh, the Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse. Sure, you know, about the guys from Notre Dame. But you're right, because it's a pastoral game. It's not a beat that has so-and-so out of, out of so-and-so. And I love watching the NFL, a little bit of college, and, and the NBA. My son, Ben, is the biggest Nick fan. Makes me look ambivalent about the Red Oh, Sox. yeah, he is. <laughs> he <laughs> went last night, and he knows all the people there. And, hey, Ben. I, and he's, I don't know, by the way, if you know, he's starting a new show next week on Amazon Prime. No, he's I the, didn't. The lead sports anchor on Amazon Prime Sports Network. From 8 to 10, Monday through Friday, he co-hosts the morning news show and then is executive producing all the other shows on that network. Wow. Wow. They've been getting the kinks out of it, so it's scheduled to start Monday. I hope so. If not, they'll wait a day. But he's been working on it for some time now. So I want to pivot back to movies. Jennifer Aniston came out and did an interview, I think, with Allure magazine. And one of the things she said was that movie stars are dead. That it's a, the stars now are, in her words, TikTok dipshits. Do you think movie stars still exist in the way that they always have? In, in, if, if they didn't exist, they wouldn't be stars. There are different types of stars. I mean, there's, uh, t- my favorite actress on this generation is, is Jessica Chastain. Mm. 
and right. she can do anything. She's now going to play Loretta Lynn after playing uh, Tammy you know, Faye Baker. Tammy Faye. Uh, they're, they're, they're great actors in every generation. My favorite actress is one you may not know, Jane Alexander. Oh, she, God, Oh, yes. I love Jane Alexander. She's a wonderful actress. She was in The Great White Hope. And uh, she, she did a movie, by the way, I think she did a movie called Testament, uh, which was a post-nuclear war that was just heartbreaking, heartbreaking. She's an amazing actress. All the President's Men. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I went to acting school with Lee, at Lee. I studied with Lee Strasberg. And I recommend that to anybody who wants to get into our business. I can speak in front of 10,000 people tonight and not and maybe be nervous, but not really. Ethel Merman said. She's never nervous. There's a reason why she's on the stage and they're not. Hmm. Well, what, what's the greatest stage performance you've ever seen? Individual greatest stage performance. The greatest was Evita. Uh, you know, uh, and, and uh, anything Ethel Merman did. You can hear Ethel Merman singing three blocks away. <laughs> once, once ran into her and said, oh, I, I, I heard I, I, you, you sang wonderfully last night. She said, were you in the theater? Why didn't you come out? Said, no, I was three blocks away. I could hear you. <laughs> <laughs> I love so he lived in our building growing up and he's forgotten today but he was a wonderful uh, comedic actor and he he loved baseball he had five daughters he called it his infield so, <laughs> oh, i love it that's my, great my parents were not orthodox jews by any means but they did observe and uh, he would come to our seders with his wife evelyn who was not jewish and she didn't know that the, the bitter herbs are something you take very in very small portion. She took a spoonful and fainted afterward. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. That's so great. Martin Scorsese um, or Scorsese um, says that superhero movies aren't real movies. They they diminish the, the art form in some way. Now, I can tell you that I'll tell you up front. I'm going to see the new Black Panther movie today, Wakanda Forever. How, how do you feel about superhero movies, the, the Marvel universe and the DC universe and all that stuff? Even if I have to, but the stars are the special effects more than the story and more than them, more than the demands on the actor. But how many more superheroes can we get and relate to? I mean, they're, they're this plays to an African-American audience primarily, but means everybody will go. But they can have certain superheroes. Now, I'm waiting for the Jewish superhero. That would be something. That would be something. Yeah. Yeah. Some feet and then goes, oh, my back is killing me. Then. <laughs> <laughs> my own people, I can make a joke. That's, yeah. that, that's, that's the rule. That's the rule. I, I wanted to add, and, and are you, you going to continue on a, on a, a more of a movie kind of uh, theme, yeah, Steve? Yeah. Oh, okay. Oh, go ahead. Ask your question because I oh, want to revert yeah, back I was to gonna, something else. I was going to ask you about movies that you may have reviewed that don't hold up well movies that you gave great reviews to that now when you think about it and now when history looks back or, or the reverse a movie you gave a bad review to that's become a classic the only review i review i regret doing and i reviewed it again later was the front or the front was woody allen was fronting for people who are blacklisted using him as their anonymous as their as their fake name and he was very funny and I didn't think there was anything funny about the blacklisting. Hmm. And I later met, uh, I think it wasn't Rita Moreno. It was somebody else, an actress. Um, oh, I, I know her real name too. Yoiva Rosenthal. I'll think of it in a minute. She was blacklisted. 
And she said, there was a lot of gallows humor. So I went back and I saw the film again and I got it and I did another review of it saying I was wrong. I didn't, I mean, I was a child during the blacklisting. I didn't remember that. But I've known actors who were, Zero Mostel was blacklisted. Who, 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 who too? Ruta Lee. Oh, Ruta Lee was back at blacklisted. When Zero Mostel was called in front of the so-called House Un-American Activities Committee, the chairman later was going to jail for income tax evasion said, Mr. Mostel, I'm curious about your first name. He said, uh, Congressman, I'm named after my financial status in the community. And they think <laughs> <laughs> that's why they blacklist. Zero got a, he got a knock on the door once, said, I'm a Jehovah's Witness. I bring a me message from God. He said, I'm sleeping. Just slip it under the door. I'll take care of it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's, a, that's interesting. I was going to, now I'm going to want to ask you, you know, you talked that, the, that, you know, what was happening with the blacklisting, you know, you didn't find anything funny in that. Um, then you'd look at a movie like Jojo Rabbit, you know, which was, you know, kind of, you know, joking about the Holocaust, you know, or, you know, what happened with Jews back then. Um, is, can you, can you, can you embrace movies like that? I, I don't think there's anything funny about the Holocaust. I, I did find, I know, but, but movies, you, just to take a chance for the sake of it, uh, I did find out when I wrote three books about my dad's columns, about his time, not about him, about the people he wrote about, collecting his anecdotes. And in 1939, there was a German-American Bund meeting at Madison Square Garden, which was broken up with a fight in the FBI and all that. I learned that during that meeting, <clears throat> my father was among those mentioned derisively by Fritz Kuhn, the, the American Nazi. And at the mention of my father's name, cascading booze came down from the top of Madison Square Garden. <laughs> he was never prouder in his life. <laughs> so I, I've got one last thing for you. I'm curious about this because, you know, I used to own movie theaters. I love movies. Uh, now people stream movies on, you know, various streaming platforms. What's in 20 years, will people still go to a movie theater to see a movie? I hope so. It may, may not be able to. If gas prices are what they are, babysitter, parking lot, about to buy dinner out, it becomes a several hundred dollar outing. On the other hand, if it's something's good, if it's good, I think it's good any side of the screen. People have big screens now. I watched a movie this morning called Lou with, um, uh, what's her name from the West Wing? You know, Allison Janney. Oh, yeah. Who plays a woman living alone in a mountain, in a cabin in, in uh in the pacific northwest and a child is kidnapped and she grabs her gun and she is just totally believable that's good on any size screen but it may not have had the financial backing to get a booking in a theater but it can get a bigger audience on tv i think it's it, i wouldn't invest in movie theaters right now because it's not not what it once was and there are no movie palaces anymore not many anyway uh i'm glad i was able to see movies at the at the, at the grand theaters radio city i remember seeing movies there and and, and the Roxy and, and the Capitol Theater here in New York. And uh, my friend Leonard Malton just did a, aired a film about the great movie theaters of, of L.A. And they're as much of an evening as, as, the, as the films themselves. But I think the whole experience is very different now. The more available they are, the more it's good for actors. Because look, if you're an actor and you want to get work, there are so many more places you can go for work now, unimaginably more. But I don't think the movie theaters of, of yore are ever going to come back. Uh, thank yeah. goodness I was lucky enough to sell in 2016 before all this stuff went down because I, I, I would feel it, it would have been an unbelievable hardship. Where was your theater? Uh, I had uh, up to 37 screens. I had 16 screens in Ooh. Palm Springs. 
Um, wow. And I had a I had a ten screen art house out there called Cinema's Palm Door, and we showed a mix of commercial and and art films and foreign language stuff and documentaries that otherwise people not might not have been able to see. That's true. I think that I wish they, they, they had many more of those kind of theaters where you can see a 1942 film that's rarely shown. Well, we have Turner Classics for that, too. But the more, the better. You know, my godmother was a movie starlet. I should say a, 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 a studio starlet named Madge Evans, who was in Dinner at Eight, who was in David Copperfield. And she used to tell us about stories about working with Spencer Tracy and with W.C. Fields. And though she, she's made about 30, 30 or 40 films back in the day. Those kind of actors of that generation deserve to be screened somewhere. And I'm, I'm, I thank you for at least sticking with it as long as you could. Hmm. So um, I wanted to ask you one last thing. Uh, I know that you've written uh, sports trivia books, and I used to do a segment on Steve's radio show many years ago. <laughs> <laughs> and I have this book by Bill Mazur, which was oh. written in 1980. I have it. I knew you know, the, okay, so I, I knew, I know that you would know who he is. So I asked a question, but I didn't preface the fact that it was written in 1980. <laughs> so my question was, what is the oldest ballpark in the major leagues as of 1980? As of 1980. Has to be Fenway Park, wasn't it? Well, it's it got to be Fenway or Wrigley, right? Fenway's older. Fenway's the, Fenway's the oldest. All right. Well, as of 1980, it was Comiskey Park. I, I, dis- I disagree with that. I, I, I have to take it up with, with the, Bill uh, Mazur. With Bill Mazur. <laughs> <laughs> Built in 1912, the same week the Titanic opened. And the, what's, the, what's the distance between the pitcher's rubber and the catcher? 60 feet, 6 inches, right? Yep. The difference, the, the length of the top deck of the Titanic to the water was 60 feet, 6 inches. Wow. Huh. Weird and synchronicity there. Latest trivia question in our next book. Who was the former manager, the former gen, uh, commissioner of baseball? Bud Selig, S-E-L-I-G. Spell it backwards, you get G-I-L-E-S, Warren Giles, former president of the National League. Things oh, like wow. that. Oh, that's cool. That's fascinating. Fascinating. <laughs> Most Ooh. of them are twin brothers, the Kensekos. Ozzy never hit one. <laughs> listen, listen, Jeffrey, it is so much fun to have you on and spend some time with you. Uh, it, ben is a, is a great friend, a great guy. And I reached out to him and was able to get to you. And we'd love to do this again somewhere along the line. You are a, you are one of one, my friend, one of one. I'm glad my wife is listening. <laughs> She's probably <laughs> Who are those guys? Wait she said, she said, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. But uh, any- Jeff Jeffrey, thank you so much. Anytime. I'm at your disposal. What a fascinating guy. I said raconteur, right? Raconteur. He's got yes. anecdotes about everyone from all times. You know, there's a book about um um uh uh Ilya Kazan. Yeah. Ca- yeah. Called uh A Life. Okay. And that's what I think of when I think of Jeffrey Lyons. Yeah. Um, he has had quite quite a life. Yeah. Yeah, he has. And his son, Ben, is a great guy. Do you Have you met Ben? I've never met Ben. No. Oh, he's a great guy. Great guy. Uh, and Jeffrey, wonderful man. Um, hey, listen, uh, thanks so much for listening. We always appreciate you guys tuning in. Uh, don't forget, you can subscribe to the Culture Pop Podcast on Apple, Spotify, and at stevemason.com. And uh, please leave us a rating and a review. We will see all you guys next time on the Culture Pop Podcast. <laughs>